Welcome to the Making Do podcast. I'm Emily Kerfinell, and this is a podcast with creative inspiration for makers growing businesses in lean times. I'm the founder at One Mill School and Wholesale in a Box. We work with makers and creative business owners to help them grow their businesses. And it's clear how severely the makers we work with have been affected by COVID. But we're also seeing incredible ingenuity, generosity, and innovation. We're seeing makers making do. So on this podcast, we share honest interviews with makers about the challenges they face and the creative approaches they're experimenting with. Today, we're talking to Connie Matisse, the co-founder and chief marketing officer of East Fork. Based in Asheville, North Carolina, East Fork designs, manufactures, and sells thoughtful and durable ceramic dishware. We talk about how they've grown. We talk about Connie's approach to weaving their values and their business goals together and get some fascinating looks behind the scenes of what it takes to run a maker business that has grown to more than 60 employees. The Making Do podcast comes to you from the makers of One Mill School, which is a comprehensive training and community program for creative small business owners. We offer a step-by-step path to support your creative resilience and thriving in this new economy. To learn more, come see us at onemillschool.com. And if you love a beautiful and helpful print publication, sign up for the One Mill Quarterly. It's our brand new newspaper-style print newsletter with inspiration and practical tips on growing a creative business. We wanted to make something you can pull from the mailbox and read while you wait for the water to boil or jot notes onto while you have your coffee. Just go to onemillschool.com quarterly to get yours. And for the first hundred people that sign up, you can get an issue totally free with free shipping using code FIRSTFREE at onemillschool.com quarterly. That's code FIRSTFREE at onemillschool.com quarterly. Hey, Connie. Hi, Emily. How are you? Thanks for being here. Let's jump in. You run East Fork, which is a pottery company, but a lot of your background is in food and farming and restaurants, which does make sense. But would you tell us more about your background and, and journey? Yeah, sure. And I'll also just acknowledge before we get started the business, it was 100% my husband and his vision and his business. And he has been the potter since day one. He's been making pots since he was in a little boy, like a six-year-old boy started to, to play with clay and started kind of leveling it up in sixth grade. And he was a, first and foremost a potter, never imagined doing anything besides being a potter. And so when I met him and at 24 and I had no idea what I wanted to do or who I wanted to become, and we were just in such stark contrast with each other because he really was so committed to making pottery. And honestly, that sent like sent me into a, a total existential crisis because I was still in that time of my life where I, I knew what I loved, I knew where my passions were, but I just didn't know how, how they were all going to come together um, and make sense. So my own background, I, I studied English and peace and conflict studies. I went to Berkeley. I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to be a journalist and be a you know, an activist and do, I had visions of starting some radical farm that was cooperative. I lived in co-ops. I did, I did that whole thing in Berkeley and then moved to New York where I took every single job that I could possibly 
you know, <laughs> and anyone that would hire me, I would say yes to just because that's, that's how it works there. It's not a good place to be unemployed. But while I was there, I, I worked in a lot, of, a lot of restaurants, which I'd always done. I left because I needed to get out of New York City. I went and lived in France and worked on a, a sheep farm in France for about nine months. Did not learn any French somehow. I, I only talked to the sheepdog and <laughs> I had all my French are like commands to a sheepdog. Um, so I can say like, fetch the sheep and come bring him home. <laughs> I can say milk the sheep. Um, I can say there are no potatoes left and that's about it. <laughs> um, I was doing a lot of writing and um, helping some, some cookbook authors and editors do transcription and copy editing for cookbooks. Um, so I ended up getting getting kind of connected to a fun world of food people and food media people and who were always kind of in my back pocket when I came down to Asheville and, and started joining the family this family pottery business. It's funny because I talk to so many people who feel like their background is, is very random and scattered, but then I hear your background and it feels like all the dots connect just perfectly. I mean, yeah. even you saying that you wanted to be an activist and a journalist, I feel like oh, that's kind of what you do now. Exactly. That's, like, that's the fun part of being an entrepreneur is that you do just get to be like, well, here are the things I'm good at and here are the things yeah. I'm not good at and let's, I'm just going to put them together. And so yep. it's been the, the crux of our success has really been figuring out what we're passionate about and using that as our strategy to run our business and sell. Okay, so that brings us to East Fork. Can you, we'll talk in a minute more about like if things have changed since COVID, but just thinking about like, you know, at the beginning of this year, what was kind of a snapshot of East Fork and what you make, what you do, how big you are, what that looks like? Yeah. Oh my gosh. The beginning of 2021, ugh, like you should have seen these annual planning decks. It was the first year that we had really done some intentional annual planning by department. We were, I think, 75 people going into 2021. We just, we so we moved into this factory that we're in right now in 2018. And we were really kind of settling in. It was feeling like home, but we were also recognizing that it was too small and that it wasn't going to be able to be home for long. So this was the year that we were going to really try to grow our audience by getting on the road and doing second sales all over the country and doing like a lot of events with with food people in Portland and Seattle and LA and New York and DC. And we had we had the most thrilling travel and event schedule plans. We were trying to avoid having to sell our seconds online. We wanted to sell them in a way that felt that felt just more brand aligned and more exciting. And so the idea was to just like load up a van and just drive around the country doing pop-up second sale events that were were also just times for like the, the restaurant and the food and beverage community to gather and to, to network and to get to know each other. And so that was the plan. Obviously that didn't happen. Our, we were supposed to get on a plane in you know mid-March, start the, the West Coast tour. Yeah, so the, the snapshot is we, we have about, we have more people now than we did in the beginning of the year. 56 people in our production team and then everybody else's marketing, sales, fulfillment, admin. We have two stores, one in Asheville and one in Atlanta. We do a lot of community engagement. So we have a pretty big culture and people team who are working on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a big team. Got a lot going on. I guess one thing, let's go back to the mission piece of things. So you've said that you make gorgeous pottery. It's beautiful and I don't own it, but from what I understand, just deeply quality oriented as well for just like usable everyday ceramics. Yeah. But you've also said that pottery is not your mission. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about what your mission is? Yeah. And so I think that pottery is an integral part of the mission. Like I can't really imagine East Fork existing without pottery. 
but lots of what East Fork does isn't the pottery is just like the vessel through which we we do the mission. And the mission is really to plain and simple to provide a workplace where people can show up and really be who they are and feel held and accepted and supported in that and to have a, a real career where they can have benefits and potentially, you know, grow with the company and, you know, grow families and buy houses and and not just for people in sales and marketing, for people in production as well. So I mean that's and and while doing it, challenging the assumptions of how business should be run and trying our best to kind of pave a new path for how businesses can operate within a capitalist society while also kind of be building a new foundation from which to do business on in the meantime. And I think we're succeeding in that. And it's been, I think it's been like really critical to our success is how differently we've been running our business. It kind of has the marketing piece all wrapped up in it together because all we do is we tell the story of how we're running our business and it's appealing to people and so they listen and they want to learn more. And so we tell them more. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I, I can get granular about any piece of it. Yeah, I would be curious. So one thing that a lot of folks who listen to this podcast, they they hire at some point, right? Like right now, people might be hiring even just extra help for the holidays, or they might have a couple people working for them. And it's hard. There are a lot of challenges that come up when you hire and start creating a team. So this is a big question, but I'm curious, like, can you pull out anything that you all have learned about creating that workplace that you envision within the company? Oh, yes. We can talk about this for days. Yes, when you first start hiring, we, we learned lessons the hard way. Like everyone, like most people, mm-hmm. if I'm going to be able to offer the ability to circumvent some of those less, some of those hard lessons, before you hire anybody, I think it is so wildly important to have your mission, vision, and values kind of laid out and to figure out what type of culture you want to create within your own business before you put a job description out there. One of the key mistakes that we made early on, and, and it's hard to like necessarily call it a, a mistake entirely, but because it felt kind of like what we needed to do, we waited too long to, to start the hiring process. And so when we realized that we needed more help, we kind of reached around to whoever was this and was like, okay, you and you, and and then like your friend and then their friend and maybe their husband and maybe they're this. And, and so we ended up with a, a really homogenous, really involved group of people when we were about 25 people, it was very white. It was very, you know, middle class, upper middle class. A lot of people went to the same school. Everybody knew each other, which, you know, it, it, in some ways it was really beautiful and it was very much like a family. But we knew that eventually Eastwork was going to be a bigger company and we didn't want it to feel like family. We wanted it to feel like work because in family, boundaries can be pretty unclear. I mean, ultimately your employer shouldn't be your parent and setting up familial relationship in a workplace or having that sense of family. I mean, you see it in the restaurant industry all the time where it really allows people to be taken advantage of and it allows, empl- it allows employers to take advantage of people. That's been interesting. So as we grew bigger, we realized we needed to just get a lot more intentional about how we hired. And I think just in the last six months, we've really understood what that means. And that means preempting the help that you might need and getting a job description written like six months before you actually need to hire for that job, shopping it around to every single, you know, people outside of your network. I think it's so easy for people in small, small craft businesses and or maker businesses to just be like, well, I'm just going to hire this person that I know because X, Y, and Z, but you're not actually hiring based on competencies or based on the needs of your business. You're, you're hiring based on convenience. And that doesn't go great. And it also... If you want to build an equitable business where you're where you're actually providing work for for people who aren't just 
kind of next in line, it's really important to think about access and to think about, you know, why people in your immediate network have are in your immediate network. And it's if it's because they all went to the same craft school or whatever it is, it's important to challenge, just challenge your assumptions about about what your staff should look like. And I mean, a lot of the skills that we hire for, like when people, when people are like, I love pottery, like I want to come and work for your company because I, I went to, I have an MFA in ceramics. We're just like, probably not going to be a good fit. Like, unless you, like, we're hiring for, you know, active listening skills and we're hiring for um, adaptive tenacity. And yeah, I think hiring based on competence, competencies that are measurable and also hiring based on communication quality. Like those are things that you should hire for versus like someone who happens to also study in the same program that you did or something like that. I find it like, I just want to like jump up and run around the room as you're talking about this. Cause it's so exciting to me. One of the things that's really interesting about what you're saying is that the value of having diverse, equitable, inclusive company is supported by gathering people where you're hiring based on competency, not based on convenience. So those two things are not like in opposition. Those two things are very much the same thing, but it just takes a lot more effort, a lot more forethought and uh, a lot more vision about what you're trying to do. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Another place that you do that so well, do something that makes sense on a business level and then do something that makes sense for advancing your values is with your new seconds approach. So you had this vision, apparently, which I didn't know about, that you were going to drive around the country in a van and sell your seconds. Because what I understand is that your seconds are really popular. You'll do like sales and they'll sell out right away. In the recent weeks, I'm not sure, maybe the last couple of months, you launched this new system of doing it. Would you tell us about that? Like what it is, what the vision for it is and how it's gone? Yeah, sure. So yeah, one of the things that the ways that East Fork feels like we can serve our mission and play out our mission of creating a more equitable community is is kind of challenging our customers to do a little bit more work in order to purchase our pots, which sounds counterintuitive. And it's funny when like all of the, you know, the D2C and, and user experience people get on our website, they're like, this makes no sense. And we're like, that's kind of the point. <laughs> we sell ultimately we sell a luxury good that's not a, that's not accessible for most people. But I don't feel guilty about like I don't feel shame around that. Um because what I what I really love about our product is that it does have this very universal appeal and we don't have only upper middle class affluent white customer base. We have a customer base that's that's pretty diverse and and with homes that look very different and people who spend $3,500 on a dinner set and all the fixings in one go, or people who collect one piece over time and, you know, ask for Christmas presents or birthday presents. And so we've created this community of people who are, are really engaging with our company because of the values that we put out there. And we've seen that people are willing to, to be challenged by us, which is, which is exciting for me with my like social activism hat on is that I think so many businesses are assume that they have to acquiesce to their customer base or, or, you know, assume that the customer is always right or, you know, do whatever is in their power to get a customer the thing that they need, even at the expense of their own values. One of the ways that we've been challenging that is is putting this barrier to entry essentially on our seconds. Our seconds used to sell, you know, at at in-person events and then online, but the online second sales were such a terrible customer experience. It was terrible for our team. We would get so much web traffic um, and our inventory management system in the back ends like, wouldn't keep up. And so we'd oversell and people would just get so angry about it and honestly created this like yucky culture of like hoarding and like, yeah, people were like buying tons of stuff because they, they could get it in their cart and like check out immediately. And I don't know, it, it didn't feel good. And it was honestly just operationally impossible for our, our staff to manage. 
when when the uprising started happening in you know in early June after George Floyd's murder, there was this big call to action that that all businesses were like supposed to be saying something. A lot of businesses did, and some did it well, and some didn't do it so well. Part of the what I was thinking early on was that like how how do we bake in an opportunity to showcase social activists social activism year round without and like kind of committing ourselves to making this a year-round commitment, a year-round story that we tell and, and something that we educate on and educate ourselves on all year long and not just in you know this one summer. And so we created a landing page for our seconds. Essentially, it's just like a password-protected collection on our website where we kind of discuss the difference between wealth redistribution and wealth reclamation. One of the big things that kind of the new way of, of liberatory thinking wants to challenge is this idea that businesses should be the people who determine where money should go or should be like donating on behalf of their customers. The desire is for all for individuals to really take it on themselves to be learning what's happening in their community and to be giving money directly. And so this is kind of a combination. We're still kind of providing the, you know, we're showcasing a certain organization, but we basically ask our customers to donate money to organization that it doesn't have to be a nonprofit because that's this whole other thing. Someone who's doing good work in our community, you have to give them five dollars, ten dollars, however much you can afford in order to have a password that allows you to shop the second. So it's a win-win because it lets things trickle out slowly and we can like keep up with the inventory. And we put a lot of money into back into the Asheville community. It's been awesome. We've raised we raised like over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars this year. So and are you happy with it so far? Yeah. I mean so far we there's a little bit like user experience stuff we have to do on the front end of the website to just make it a little bit easier. Sometimes the password doesn't automatically get sent and it's just kind of clunky. But considering that we just like threw it together ourselves, it's it's working really, really well so far. We've had a, yeah, 99% of people are like, this is amazing. I really learned something from your page. And I, you know, I, and I learned about good work being done. And so, yeah, obviously we have some people who are just like, I don't want to donate to get access to seconds. I'm like, okay, then you don't have to buy them. Like, <laughs> you don't have to buy them. You don't have to. Yeah. There's lots of people who make pottery. There's other plates. You know, no one is going to, us putting a barrier to our product is not like disallowing someone to like drink their coffee in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) They can still get their coffee. Thinking about East Fork generally, kind of taking a step back, I guess, over the last several years, what are you proudest of and what do you wish were different? I think we've done a good job of, of pushing the envelope as far as we possibly can while also setting realistic expectations. I think that we have have really paved the path for businesses to just take a more radical approach. There's a lot of D2C companies that, you know, kind of claim to be mission and values led, but it's it really is just a marketing tactic. And I think that people really see that it's not just for show at East Fork, that it's something that our social justice work and our, our desire to create a more equitable workplace and, and community is rooted in it happens at every single level of our business. And I think that you can tell I mean, we've made so many missteps. I've made so many mistakes, but I, I think I'm lucky in that become a trusted enough member of community because of, of how deeply committed to this, that people have been comfortable calling me out when I've done something mm. gotten really good. I've gotten, I'm proud of that. I've gotten really good at <laughs> back and acknowledging when I've done something stupid and important course correcting. And I think it's one of the most important things that anyone, any human mm-hmm. work on is just being okay with not being a perfect person and not mm-hmm. completely demolish you. If someone says, Hey, you did something and it hurt. And I didn't, mm-hmm. it's like, get, yeah, that's, it's the least that, that I can do is be like, Oh, 
shit, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for telling me. Mm -hmm. You get used to that. It's like, it becomes so easy and it's so helpful Mm -hmm. in doing better the next time. So I guess I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that we've, we've really pushed the envelope. And when we've, when we've made a mistake, we have taken the feedback and really internalized it and done better the next time. Mm-hmm. It hasn't stopped us from trying more. Like I yeah. get knocked off the horse, we get back on and we keep doing the thing because we know it's the right thing to do. I think sometimes as companies grow, even when they're still very small, but they, they start to feel like they have something at risk or, or something that, that they can't, you know, that they need to protect. They stop taking those risks and they stop putting themselves out there and they don't want to make a misstep. And then you know, like on social media, they'll be called out and that will be terrible. And it does come across that you're not approaching it that way. Yeah, you can't be scared. I mean, the worst that can happen, I mean, unless you do something that's really bad, then you probably should get called out for it and suffer a little bit for it. But the worst that can happen is someone calls you out and, you know, you you apologize and you say, here's what I learned from that. And then you mm-hmm. going. I mean, that's it's not. Yeah, that's it's a pretty small price to pay. I was just trying to think of think of things that I wish that I had done differently. I, I think most of it is me specifically and, and my teams. It's taken me a really long time to get out of that martyr mentality to understand that I don't need to do everything myself and that there are mm. competent people that I can hire and that I don't need to be working 80 hours a, a week. And I'm understanding that now, but now there's a lot of course correcting that needs to happen in order uh-huh. to keep up my teams because everyone is tired. And my husband's been telling me for you know two years, like Connie just like, preemptively hire and think about what it's going to feel like next year. And I've just taken on more and more and more. Yeah. So yeah, getting more help would have been, I'm not, I'm not proud that I didn't take his advice because I think I would be a a better manager at this point had I not been, if I weren't so in the weeds. (laughs) I was going to ask you about that actually, because I feel like in some areas of a company, it's a lot more obvious how to, how to hire and how to manage. But I feel like the way you do marketing, as we've talked about is so it's all the things we've talked about and just so related to your personal values and your personal read on the world that it seems like it would be hard. So like, how do you put together that team? How do you put together that plan for the year in terms of marketing? Like, are there any systems or approaches you've figured out for being able to build up a team around that kind of storytelling that has worked? Yeah. I mean, I'll use the example of, um, and our team is so tiny. <laughs> we have myself. So I guess I'll, I'm going to do a quick tree. I'm the, I'm the CMO. I have our senior brand manager who started off as a retail associate, Erin Holly. She worked in the restaurant industry before too. And, and she does all of our PR and external facing partnerships. So she talks to other brands and anyone who we are going to do content with. She's like their go-to person. And once long ago, she did events for us. And so I put her in that position because she's really good at like, hustling and working on the fly. And, you know, someone who's really good at waiting tables and making drinks is probably going to be really good at like going on events and making some, making sure that something is set up and taken down. Right. So she's amazing. And then, you know, Cherry, our food systems manager makes, makes meals at, for our staff. And one day a week, they help me with content marketing. I wish I could have them more. Then we have a, a creative team, which is separate. So we have a photographer, an art director and a graphic designer, but I'm really the only person still who's like, um, like serving as like the editor and like making things all come together. And that's what I'm going to be hiring for next. But I did hire a copywriter this year. That was a super illuminating process. I, we did it a totally blind process. So I think we got 120 applications. I didn't see anybody's names, anybody's anything that would give me any indication of who they were. We were going to have a lot of people in Asheville applying for that position. And it was really long process where we asked people to submit writing samples and about and make suggestions for journal posts and write Instagram captions. 
I was able pretty quickly to see who was able to use language or who, who had a good feel for, for more up-to-date language that felt, you know, not only brand aligned, but aligned with our, our social values. And I ended up with hiring someone who's, I mean, she's just doing an incredible job and I trust her completely. That's exciting. That's really big. Congratulations. Really, really big. But yeah, it's, yeah. for next year, we're making everything about about food. I think we have a, plenty of people who write about food, but I think that we take a pretty particular approach that feels very intimate and that's very intersectional. And so we take a cookbook each month and that's kind of like our the jumping point for our content for the month. And so this month we did Essentials of Italian Cooking and showcase items made in Italy. And we cooked from this beautiful cookbook and we brought in food and wine experts. So like on Friday, we're talking to a wine distributor from Italy about Italian wines and natural Italian wines. And, and so that kind of serves as like the framework for each month. And so next year for annual planning, I'm thinking about like, which cookbook are we going to do each month? And we'll build all of our product assortment around that. We'll build, build all of our content around that. Sometimes it'll work really nicely with our, with different like community initiatives that we're doing. So yeah, that's, but yeah, I need more help. I need a marketing director who's actually like a data person and I need a content manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need a social media associate. One of the things I'm hearing is that if you start planning out farther, it makes it so that you can bring in the right people more effectively. And it also makes it probably, I'm reading between the lines, but it probably makes it easier to manage and bring people into your vision of how you want it to go, right? If you're not just like, if you have a 12-month schedule, that's easier to bring people into aspects rather than just like sitting down at your desk and kind of (laughs) freewheeling. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if your plans are all going to get thrown out the window, it's so essential to map out your, to map everything out and to just what do we want our our customers to learn by the end of this year? And if I don't do that sort of strategizing, then I, everything would fall apart. (laughs) It's, it's very helpful. And especially for staffing because next year I know it's going to be a lot of content. Um, It's going to be a lot of video and storytelling and food photography and recipes. So knowing that that's what's going to happen, what's what I want the vision to be, then I can know that I need a videographer and I need someone who, you know, can write about food you can start piecing your team together. Right, right, down from there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so thinking about the big thing from this year, which is COVID, how has that affected you? You have a factory, you have a big team, I can imagine has been challenging in a whole variety of ways. Yes, it has been all types of challenging, but I there there's something I'm really proud of. I think that we navigated COVID as well as anyone possibly could. Um, and we're going to end up having a cash positive year and not have furloughed or laid off a single person. Yeah, I feel I feel really, really proud. We were shut down for two whole months. We preemptively shut down before a statewide shutdown, which I think I, I was also really proud of. That felt really scary at the time, you know, back when everyone was like a little bit unsure of how to proceed. And we kind of knew that a statewide shutdown was going to happen in North Carolina at some point. And so when everyone was starting to talk about flattening the curve and all that, we we're like, let's just get ahead of it. We'll do it. Um, and so we were the first in Asheville to shut down. And then a lot of other businesses followed suit. And, and we've had really, I mean, Asheville's just been really lucky. We've had very, very low case counts in relation, like compared to the rest of the country, because I think people were really proactive about it. We haven't had any cases at the factory yet either, which is just, thank God. So we shut down for two months. We quickly moved into, we moved into a, a pre-sale model. We were going to launch a, two new colors in the spring, but we weren't going to be able to make them. So we sent out a super transparent email before everyone else started sending their COVID emails that were like, yo, we're shutting down our factory. We're going to launch this color. It would be really awesome if you pre-ordered this color. And then we could, you know, that'll help us like float through the next couple months. And we had a tremendous, tremendous outpouring of support. We sold out that pre-order in 
an hour or two, put all of our seconds online. We sold all those. And so we had huge influx of cash. March ended up being our highest grossing, highest revenue month in company history. Wow. Which, yeah, I mean, it's totally bizarre. Our CFO is really good at his job and it's been really crucial for him to always have two months of operating cash on hand at all times. And so we we knew that we had at least six months of runway where we could like keep everyone on payroll, even if we didn't take like a single dollar. So, and then we got PPE, like, or uh, PPE, PPP. PPP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every time. And PPE probably. <laughs> yeah. We got lots of PPE too. Yeah, actually, Alex is like, um, he's always on WeChat with different like equipment manufacturers in China. And so he had this and everyone, all of his, his representatives in China had just gone through, you know, a, a really pretty intense period of lockdown. And so they were like sending us like the most supportive, sweet, kind emails about how like, we were going to get through it and they just got through it. And here's how. It, so we had like a lot of like international support and advice and they sent us a bunch of PPE from their factory. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. So we had like, we were stocked up on masks before anyone else. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I think we did a good job of, of just like forecasting how this was going to play out and preparing our, our team members as best we could. We kept morale up, but we were doing this like daily writing prompts and everybody was like sharing like the sweetest stories and really getting to know each other over the internet while we were all shut down. And then we just jumped back into it. We completely changed our selling strategy into a pre-order only model because we didn't have any more inventory left on the shelves. And it's been awesome. It's been a great customer experience. It's been so easy for our team because now we have like a make list that we're making off of versus having to forecast inventory to the SKU. We're going to eventually get away from that model because right now we only have like 10 days a year where you can buy pottery. It's been working really well. So yeah. And we've kept marketing budget super, super lean. We switched completely to a content strategy. It's a lot of work, but our team is awesome. We, you know, we split to two shifts. So now we have a morning shift and night shift so that people are really spread out. The factory is like big enough where people don't have to be on top of each other. So it's it's been easy to maintain distance and to all wear masks and have designated bathrooms and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, we've been really lucky. So is Asheville pretty low with a second wave then? Are you not planning to shut down again for now? Well, we're not preemptively planning on shutting down. I, it, it'll be Asheville. Our case count right now is higher than it's ever been for sure. But our case count was like almost non-existent over the summer. I mean, we had like okay. 62 cases citywide in the middle of summer. So we'll see if it's going to be a shutdown, it'll probably be a a state mandated shutdown versus a city shutdown Mm because the rest of the state has had a worse time than Nashville. Got it. Okay. Tourists keep coming. (laughs) I'm just like, go home. Yeah. South Carolina are just like pouring in. I mean, uh, Uh go home. (laughs) Yeah. And then you've been home, you're two girls, right? So you've been having to juggle childcare too. No, <laughs> I, I got a pod together like day one. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, I am not. I have like an occasional day where I'm, where I'm working from home with the kids, but they have a little kindergarten pod and no, I don't honestly like it is. I do not understand how people are managing working from home with kids. Yeah. It's just, I feel, it's, oof. yeah. <laughs> I, that, that makes me feel better actually. Cause otherwise from the outside, it's like, how does, how does this add up? No, 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 no. I have, I have, I have 38 hour a week childcare. And then I like work from like four in the morning until seven in the morning before they wake. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's how it adds up. As we finish up here, thinking about folks whose income might have shifted or disappeared during COVID, do you have any advice or thoughts that you would 
share with them for businesses or personal income yeah for for businesses for you know folks running creative businesses hmm i mean i think it's important to examine just to really understand why from where i'm standing i've never seen a, a bigger commitment from consumers to mm. buying to buy to shopping small like I, I feel like it's it's been something that people have been paying a lot of lip service to but it this is the first time, like since COVID, it's, I feel like people have really actually leveled up to that commitment and started actually, actually doing it. And so it's a great time right now to grow your audience and to, to really put yourself out there and to find your niche and to figure out who you are and how you want to differentiate yourself and, and then do it really confidently. It's interesting right now, like there, I think a lot of people are, are scared of looking like they're value signaling by participating in, you know, giveaways or raffles that are that are in service of community. But I really like to think like to challenge that and say like, it's if what you're if how you're presenting yourself in the world is also creating actual impact and like in good for someone else, then that's okay. Like it's okay that my marketing is, you know, kind of looped in with our community activism, like, because it's good for our community too. It's not, you're not just like speaking words without anything happening. And so it's a it's a great time right now to participate to, to really rally together and like look around and see how you can be in service and how you can kind of position yourself as a good neighbor. You know, you think about like before advertising happens, like before social media, businesses that did well did well because they were like kind of respectable members of the community and like word got around and like maybe they like lended a helping hand to other businesses around. Like you had a good reputation because you were a good person, you know? And that's okay. Like if that's if that's how you grow your business by being a good person, a good neighbor and like you know, helping raise money for someone else who's doing something else that, that needs it. Like it just really thinking about how you can like gather up your people and do something. Yeah. Do it together. Um, there's, there's really room for everybody in this space. And there is like a, a real commitment right now from consumers to purchase things that, that are from companies that feel aligned with their personal values. I think that's a great note to end on. Where can people find you in East Fork? You can find us at eastfork.com and at East Fork Pottery on Instagram, where we sound off about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Connie. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much for the good questions, Emily. That's it for today's episode. You can find the podcast, get in touch with me, and find full show notes at makingdopodcast.com and Making Do Podcast on Instagram. If you like the podcast and want to get more inspiration and support for your creative business, visit us at onemillschool.com. And if you love a beautiful and helpful print publication, sign up for the One Mill Quarterly. It's our brand new newspaper style print newsletter with inspiration and practical tips on growing a creative business. Just go to onemillschool.com slash quarterly to get yours. And for the first hundred people that sign up, you can get an issue totally free with free shipping using code firstfree at onemillschool.com slash quarterly. That's code firstfree at onemillschool.com slash quarterly. Thank you so much for listening and we will be back with you next week.